The word why, what a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. The key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Well, I'm going to take a little bit of a detour from uh, some of my typical interviews. Uh, maybe this is very typical. Some of you might be saying, uh, I, I, maybe this is me at my age now, uh, also being a father and being what I call an accidental advocate. And that's maybe a conversation for another time, but really diving in and having conversations about impact, about our communities, our society. Um, you know, the political season is heating up. There are a lot of conversations going on that I, I would like to continue. Um, and sometimes they don't at local soccer fields or dance classes uh, or bus stops. And I, I think that that is very important for us. It's a responsibility that we have as citizens of this country. And I want to extend that conversation with um, an incredible individual, individual author, historian um, out of my home state of Michigan. Um, Steve Babson is a labor educator and union activist living in Detroit with his wife, Nancy. He received his doctorate in U.S. history from Wayne State University, where he worked as an instructor and extension program coordinator in the Labor Studies Center. He has published six books, including Working Detroit, The Making of a Union Town, Lean Work, Empowerment and Exploitation in the Global Auto Industry, and The Color of Law, Ernie Goodman and the Struggle for Labor and Civil Rights in Detroit. And we are talking about his latest book, uh, which I have right here, which is Forgotten Populace, When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. Um, Steve, what a, what a fantastic and interesting, and I think enlightening book that you have written. Um, I, before we get to the timing of this, because, you know, when I received this, um, through folks that you're working with from the publisher, um, and, and I know this was published by Mission Point Press of Traverse City, Michigan, lovely area, by the way, <laughs> for those that are looking yes, for places to go, um, is I just thought, gosh, this is incredible, the timing of this. And, and it, it really focuses, I think, on topics that aren't really talked about that much and or glossed over by uh, current circumstances on the left, the right, and sort of any direction when we think about the body politic. I want to first dive in, though, and understand before we get into the book, tell me about your relationship with history. Did this start when you were a young boy? Tell me about where this insatiable sort of need to understand, discover, deconstruct, and explore uh, the stories of our time, where that began? Well, actually, it probably began with uh, my dad's experience in World War II. So I grew up, uh, born in 1948, I grew up in the aftermath of that struggle. Uh, and so my dad was telling me war stories. He was a, a merchant sailor, uh, third mate on a oil tanker that was torpedoed. Uh, he was a gunner's mate, and I had him tell me that story probably, I don't know how many times, but uh, uh, that got me interested in the history, uh, first of all, of World War II, uh, and I was, when I was younger, I was principally involved in, in military history, um, was drawn to that, and then uh, Civil War, United States, and actually as I examined the Civil War, I then, as I got older, was more interested in Reconstruction. Uh, and then I stumbled on uh, in my undergraduate uh, years at 
New York University onto an event that I had never heard about, and that was the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, uh, when during a severe depression uh, and massive wage cutting uh, and suppression of unions, um, there was a national railroad strike that became a general strike in Chicago and St. Louis, and where the army was called out and uh, opened fire and shot and killed over 100 strikers. And to me, that's the kind of event that is, has too often been buried in our understanding of, of American history. And I, I don't mean to raise that because we need to be dwelling on negative moments. Actually, I find quite inspirational uh, the fact that there were so many workers of courage who uh, believed in a better possibility and a better circumstance for themselves and a, a different way of organizing the economy and society that they took huge risks and uh, over time at great sacrifice actually made very positive contributions to how our country um, progressed through its history. Steve, where do you think that that, what's your perspective on why? I, I really appreciate that you talked about sort of burying history, why things get buried. It, it feels like we are experiencing that in in waves like we have never seen before. I mean, in the education space, in the K-12 space, we're banning books around the country. We are, we're now looking at what we might call classical curriculum um, that just voids, you know, stories and history and legacies, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, the embarrassing, the humiliating. Um, and I don't understand where the value is in keeping our communities from understanding this information, knowing about what's going on and not being able to have a conversation of discourse that we can all learn from that's generative. Yeah, I agree. I think it's very important, but I can also understand why some people are very alarmed at the accelerating pace of change uh, that we're all experiencing. And I know in my life, uh, you know, I came of age uh, in the 1960s uh, when cultural and economic and all a whole range of values were being transformed, the sexual revolution, the anti-war movement, uh, the drug culture that was part of the uh, underground movement uh, of those years. And uh, since then, there has been such a dramatic shift in culture as well as the economy. Uh, and I think people, many people are alarmed by that, feel insecure. And I, frankly, I think both major parties, Republican and Democratic, have not done enough to assist people coming to terms with dramatically shifting terms of employment, including employment, maybe above all, particularly our experience here in Detroit, where very often uh, a working class that had achieved a remarkable improvement in their circumstances of work and life uh, discovered that employers were no longer willing to support that. And so they moved a lot of production. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of this coming from Michigan, uh, ended up in China or Mexico where they could pay workers uh, 10%, uh, you know, a dime on the dollar that previously was earned by workers making the exact same product. And so whether it's free trade or the sexual revolution or a whole range of changes, people are alarmed by that. Some, they don't feel confident about their ability to navigate uh, in that world. And too often, they're left uh, to flounder in an economy that is automating rapidly, is moving production around the globe. And so I would argue we need to come to terms with that in the same way that the populace of the 1890s were trying to address the positive potentials of a new industrial system but too often they were denied access to those benefits on an equitable basis. And so I think we need to be thinking about 
uh, the world in those terms again. Okay, so let's dive in. I'm glad that's a, that's a perfect transition point. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the book, and and let's set the stage, if you will, put a sort of flag in the ground on what we mean by the populist movement, what defined it originally, and then we can sort of meander through how that has changed through history, and whether sure. or not we feel that it's being used to manipulate those on the margins. Right, uh, and so we're talking about the 1890s. Uh, and what the populists were calling for uh, was that this was at a time when they were pitching a big tent, calling for reform. Uh, and farmers were a principal part of that, uh, coming out of the old Farmers Alliance, but also uh, working class people, uh, part of the Knights of Labor. So there were a lot of railroad workers and coal miners uh, among those reformers, and also a lot of what the populists called honest entrepreneurs, meaning uh, men and women, principally men at that time, who were not part of the new class of robber barons, the large corporate executives, extraordinarily wealthy, very powerful. Uh, and what the populace objected to, Farmers Alliance and the Knights of Labor, uh, was that too often the Republican and the Democratic parties were simply bought and sold by this enormous and newly arrived massive wealth of this new class, small class of robber barons principally situated in uh, railroading, uh, the building of the railroads, steel, iron, coal, uh, the building of new farm equipment, the McCormick Reaper, for example. These were, these were new arrivals on the scene and represented an extraordinary concentration of wealth and capital that was being used in a, I think, reckless way uh, to buy and sell uh, political influence and power, open bribery of legislators, um, you can see why many of them ended up favoring the robber barons because they were uh, rewarded for that uh, with uh, cash on the barrel. So I think so an early form of at, early form of lobbying. It sounds like <laughs> I guess you, <laughs> yeah, a, a little more direct. Uh, <laughs> right. um, but really, uh, I mean, this was a, an economy completely unregulated, and that meant, by the way, that not only were workers and farmers getting screwed. Uh, with low wages and often enough, and with farmers uh, cascading fall in prices for wheat and cotton and corn to the point where in Kansas, uh, in some years in the early 1890s, it cost more to ship the corn to Chicago uh, than, they, than that corn would fetch in the marketplace once it arrived. And so actually in, in 1893, 1894, during a severe recession, uh, depression with 20% unemployment and no safety net, by the way, Farmers were burning corn as fuel. It was just, it was that Im impossible to live as a farmer in those circumstances. So that corn was more valuable as fuel to that family than it right. was on the open market. Right. And so there were people literally starving to death. Uh, and there was no social safety net. There was no social security. There was no Medicare. There was no unemployment benefits. The populace wanted to change that. They wanted to fortify the government with an expansion of democracy, votes for women, votes for African-Americans, votes for, by the way, to determine who your senator would be, because at that time, state legislators decided who would be the representative of that state in the U.S. Congress as a senator. And so the wealthy would buy and sell who they chose uh, for those particular positions. And the populace wanted to expand a government so that it could actually take on big business rather than simply becoming its junior partner. They wanted to regulate the railroads uh, instead of simply gifting them 
with resources. And that was, by the way, the characteristic way the railroads were built, initially with public support, but over time, as the railroads uh, proved to be remarkably abusive and poorly managed in bankruptcy a lot of the time, but they had been subsidized with enormous gifts of, for example, land. The federal government gifted railroad corporations 170 million, 170 million acres of free land. That's the size of Texas gifted to these companies, as well as, well as cash for every mile built, uh, protections for uh, their, their credit, um, and uh, turning a blind eye to massive fraud. Some of the famous cases where the railroad owners would secretly also own the contractor that was building the railroad who would double charge twice the cost of actually laying the rails, and then the subsidy would cover that. The taxpayers would cover that massive fraud. So this was a world where, you know, farmers were objecting to the high freight rates, workers were objecting to the low wages, uh, and the extraordinarily dangerous work that was involved on the railroads. In 1891, 2,600 railroad workers were killed in accidents, more than 20,000 injured. So in that circumstance, the populace said, enough of that. What we need is a government that will regulate the railroads, impose standards uh, so that uh, investors are not being swindled. And that was a frequent event as well. Uh, Jay Gould famously shorted the uh, the, his own company, the, Southern, the Union Pacific. He shorted his own, the stock of his own company to profit from it. Now, that's illegal, but it wasn't back then. Back it then was it not was considered not. illegal. It was considered unethical. And the populace said, we need, we need to regulate what's going on here. This is a new system. A massive industrial uh, investment has been made. It could be beneficial to people and workers, but we need to actually impose standards. So if I, if I struggle to take the sort of the cynical hat off and it's, it remains on my head, Steve, <laughs> I, I think about all these stories and I look at your book and, I, and there's this, I, I love this just sort of side tale around the, the Kansas agitator and Annie Diggs. Right. And and sort of the impact of both the press and the power of voice within communities um, to hopefully agitate and, and I guess, drum up a, a swell of momentum that would actually have sustainable um, and substantive change. And I'm wondering if so many of the stories that you unearthed in your book and your research, that they have been squelched over time because it really doesn't do any good. If, if I'm running a major corporation today in the 21st century, if the general population knows that, no, no, this has been going on for a very long time in our history, and because that can embolden people to have a different understanding, want to dig deeper, information is power. Did you, did you feel a little bit like a detective as you were exploring and building out this book? Oh, yeah, I felt that way in my entire career as a historian. Um, <laughs> and I think... To, to build on what you were saying, uh, it's an inspiring story because so much of what we take for granted today actually had to be fought for and won by people who took enormous risks uh, and were brave about posing the alternative uh, that ran counter to what vested interests wanted to perpetuate and, and maintain. And so I find it inspiring uh, when people took these kinds of risks, stepped out front and said, no, women should have the right to vote. And the populists were among the first to actually implement and support that. When they won the state power in Colorado and Idaho, those were the first two states to implement votes for women. Uh, in the South, 
uh, populists called for an alliance of black and white farmers. That's an enormously risky thing to have been advocating in the 1890s uh, after the defeat of Reconstruction and the suppression of black voting. The populists were saying, no, farmers, black and white, have the same interests. We need to be fighting together. Now, the populists didn't go far as far as we would hope uh, and what later became uh, the prevalent focus in the 1960s of civil rights and desegregation. Uh, they were accepting of a separate sphere, black and white, but they were saying black and white farmers had the same economic interests and we should be allied together. And for that, they, a lot of populists paid with their lives. They were, there was a wide range of assassinations, boycotts, shunning, violent attacks on populists, and yet they held together and for a time threatened to overturn uh, that aspect of white supremacy in the South, the, the exploitation of black and white workers and the effort to put them at odds with each other as opposed to allies. So they took enormous risks. And what we take for granted today in terms of votes for women, in terms of equal rights to vote in the South, that had to be fought for. People had to risk their lives. And, and often enough, to uh, many of them lost their lives, lost their livelihoods as well. So does this make you believe more um, in the great experiment that is our democracy or less based on the per the purview with which you bring um, and you, the, that you examine sort of our history through? Because it's a great irony. And you were talking about your father in World War II. And, you know, we want to learn from history so that we do not repeat the mistakes, right? right? And yet, what are we seeing now in 2023? We're seeing a resurgence in, in all kinds of areas that I think we would have, to a person, thought would never resurface to the level that they have, um, not only here but across the world. And so I'm just wondering, is this a great time to, to do an audit on our great experiment to understand the progress we have either made or that we have not made? Well, I think there are people, uh, particularly on the right, who are saying that democracy is actually not uh, their first choice in terms of how to manage uh, a future that is increasingly uh, troubled and where we are facing some really hard decisions about the future of this country. I mean, look at climate change. Uh, that's an existential threat, no matter what your politics. Uh, how do we deal with that? and changes in ideas of sexuality and our place in the world uh, and what it means to be a man and a woman. Uh, all of those things are areas where people's insecurities can be exploited by people who can benefit by that polarization on behalf of their power, uh, contradicting the democratic promise that it should be a, a question of open debate and discussion. And for me, this history is actually encouraging. Uh, because I see a past where the lunacy of many of the folks who are, uh, you know, devoted to an idea of a new kind of Caesar uh, or a new kind of, you know, authoritarian power, they've been around for a long, long while. They're, they're a constant part of our history. And sometimes it's been even crazier than it is now. Um, we may be heading towards uh, some of our worst possibilities, but uh, nevertheless, you look at that history, and we've dealt with this before, and we've had actually many moments where there's been inspirational coming together on behalf of democracy and the values that I take seriously and, and want to see reproduced in the public realm. So I, I've, I'm inspired by that history, even though I can see the very troubling 
perpetuation of some of the same themes, some of the same issues on the right in particular. Uh, not everyone on the left has it right either. I mean, there's a back and forth about where democracy fits into the ideology of a whole range of actors. But I would say in general, uh, the populist represented a progressive uh, uh, part of our history that, that wanted to reinforce and expand our democracy on behalf of the welfare of, of all of us. I'm curious if we explore being historian and we think about the echo chambers that currently exist and the struggle to integrate in uh, diverse thought, pat, you know, history, commentary into the ways in which we think and the way in which we then take that information and form new ideas and approaches and uh, to life and to our interactions with other other people. Do you ever feel as if historians are also getting sort of sucked into these respective echo chambers? where people are cherry picking to basically create a instead you know a stacked deck of information just to support their ideology how do, and how do you avoid that well uh you know i think th this is something that has plagued historians and social scientists and hard scientists uh for for a long long while uh and the cold question of what is objectivity uh comes to mind and I don't think I want to argue that objectivity is not a false neutrality. Uh, neutrality is impossible. We all have uh, a a way of understanding the world based on our own personal histories and perspectives. Um, and the the, nece the necessary first step to actually become objective is not to adopt a phony neutrality but to adopt a transparency and honesty in which you cross-examine your own predispositions. Uh, and every historian, uh, speaking for my, my part of this world, uh, every historian has those predispositions. We, we are with a network of people that reinforce certain ideas. And sometimes you gotta stop and think, is that really true? I've, I've assumed that these, these particular facts are privileged but is that the case? What are the alternative ways of understanding this world? And do they make sense? And is there evidence that might obligate us to rethink how we go about interpreting these matters? I mean, at one point, you know, the earth was flat and everyone knew that. And there had to be, therefore, people who said, well, no, I've been out on the ocean. And I, I worked in the Merchant Marine, too, for some summers when I was younger. And you can see it's curved. And when a ship comes over the horizon, you see the top of the mast first or the top of the superstructure of the boat first. And so there's been people for a long while going, you know, actually, the earth is round. <laughs> um, and it takes a while before that evidence accumulates enough weight uh, and interpretive power uh, to prevail. And so I think we all should be about self, you know, cross-examining our own predispositions and looking at a wider range of evidence. It's often uncomfortable, but we have to do it. Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy, Matt, at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now back to our guest. Where does that start? How do we think about it from uh, an educator perspective when we think about young people and the way in which they integrate in information? Because I agree with you that if we're going to continue to repeat these mistakes or it's a bit of a film strip where we're starting to see these scenes replay themselves, they're just updated based on 
you know, the way in which the world physically changes, uh, then it seems to be to me that we would want to think about ways to interject to educate in a way that informs because we we do have information at our fingertips. We do have the ability to travel even digitally to places we would have never been able to even 30 years ago. Right. right. And allow young people to be exposed to different cultures, experiences, biases, and then to do something with it. And my my feeling in education is too often we are treating civics and history as sort of add-ons, as not core to the curriculum. And yet that to me is the bedrock of all the other applications we want to bolt on thereafter. Right. Because you see the history of how ideas have changed and how societies have changed. And uh, for me personally, um, and I think this may account for a lot of what my subsequent life was about, it was an eighth grade teacher I had. Uh, and Mr. Steele taught us in class methods of persuasion. How do you identify the different techniques by which people can persuade you of right or wrong, can persuade you uh, to follow their way of thinking? And so it was sometimes the bandwagon. Well, everybody's doing it. Uh, or sometimes it was fear. Uh, and there was a whole range of, of possibilities for how methods of persuasion uh, might turn your head in the wrong direction or in the right direction. And you had to be aware of who was speaking on behalf of these facts. Facts never speak for themselves. They're collected by people who have a particular goal and aim. And sometimes those facts that they uh, have acquired are reasonable and effective, and sometimes they aren't. But we have to cross-examine everything in front of us, every book. every uh, People should take my book and, and look at the end notes and see how does he know this uh, and how is it how does it make sense to him uh, to take those facts and portray them in a way that's often quite different from uh, alternative perspectives? And, and bottom line is we cannot be banning books. If you're banning books, you are banning access to that potential for cross-examining your own predispositions and learning more about a world which is enormously uh, exciting to examine in its variety, in its in its surprises, uh, including the history, but also contemporary worlds uh, across the other side of the globe. Um, we have to actually be widening our viewpoints, uh, because if we don't, if we narrow it down into these echo chambers that a lot of people are retreating into, uh, we're going to end up with a planet that is laid waste by uh, climate change and where we close ourselves off from the, the need to rethink radically how we do things. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I live in a state of Tennessee where they are banning books of Ruby Bridges, Tales of Ruby Bridges. I don't know what the implications are long term, but I'm going to go out on a limb, Steve, and say there are dire consequences to eradicating the history, the stories that together have brought us to where we are today. Right. And and I think one of the things that's so wonderful about our political culture here is that there is a strong belief uh, in freedom of speech, that there should not be a suppression of alternative ideas. And, and that came from the experience of the generation uh, that fought the American Revolution. Uh, what was the practice of the British Crown. It was to suppress speech. It was to suppress alternative ideas. Uh, and I think that's that's one legacy of our distant past, our revolutionary past, uh, that has to always be held as especially valuable. Because if we if we cut off debate and discussion and suppress alternative ideas, 
whether they're considered good or bad, um, we we actually limit our capacity to make our way in a world in which we really do need to be thinking about alternatives because the way in which we've organized our society right now, economically in particular, is leading to enormous inequality, uh, extraordinary inequality, uh, a, and a population that is feels often abandoned by globalization. It was corporate globalization, in my estimate. Uh, I'm in favor of widening our links to people around the world, but corporate globalization means you lose your job and it's now being done by someone paid, uh, you know, a dollar an hour as opposed to the $25 an hour you were paid. And I think we need to be thinking about alternative ways of organizing the economy, alternative ways of thinking about how we produce energy, how we drive cars. And that's some of that's happening. And that's what's encouraging. That's what gives me hope um, that we can find a, a place in the future that is sustainable. How do we what lessons can we take from the populist movement of the 1890s? And if we apply that to today in a world where you have young people and even those in the maybe their mid-career stage of life that are very concerned about AI taking their their work away from them, their position away from them. And anybody who's done any research, and I've been very fortunate to interview a number of experts in the space, this time is not sort of in the distant future. It is now. Uh, the technology is there. And every day, every moment that you and I are even talking now, somebody is developing and enhancing that technology. And I'm wondering how the populist, if we took that sort of lens or we worked and examined it through that lens, how might we think about it in a way that is productive, that there's discourse under it? Well, now, we're, look, we have a real-time example, the SAG after strike in, in Hollywood, where one of the major concerns is around AI generating scripts and characters that basically pluck out the human, uh, the actor, the creator, the writer, in a way that maybe we wouldn't know as an audience, but we've now stripped that individual of a career. I think I think one of the things that we could learn from the populace is that they understood that technology doesn't determine its use. The technology is developed by human beings who have particular intentions, and uh, we have to come to an understanding of how that technology can help or hurt uh, people. And I'll take the railroads uh, as the principal example here. Uh, populace supported industrial uh, innovation and railroads. But they said if they're in the wrong hands, they're being used for the wrong purposes. That technology has to be taken and applied in a way that will actually make a sustainable future possible for a wider number of people. So railroads needed to be regulated. Or, by the way, if the uh, corporate executives refuse to actually address the matters of fraud and internal uh, exploitation and external price gouging, um, if they took that public resource, and again, it was it was built with public resources, public land, public subsidies. If they continue to abuse uh, their obligation to actually take that public support and make a positive use of it, then the railroad should be taken over by the public. They should be run on a public basis to make it possible for entrepreneurs, whether they're small farmers or small business people, to rely on accessible and usable freight rates uh, that allow them to prosper in a widening economy. Likewise, workers uh, uh, under a, a publicly owned railroad, the populace argued, uh, we could actually avoid the massive and, and endless bloodletting that went on with huge accidents across the board because many of these corporations would operate a railroad by cutting corners. 
by by postponing and eliminating necessary maintenance uh, or using the proper materials in the first place. Build the rails with iron instead of steel. Well, iron is more pliable and less actually secure as a way of building a railroad system. So how what goes into making a railroad? How is it used? What rates are charged? What sort of safety procedures prevail? All of these are matters that are not defined by the technology. They're defined by how we as a social system set standards for how it's going to be used equitably and in a positive way. And I would argue that AI, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, poses a new set of, of challenges, very similar to what you're talking about. And again, people cannot sit back and wait for someone else to decide how that's going to be used. We have to be actively involved with it. And that's why I support uh, the strike uh, by the SAG and AFTER people, the actors and the writers uh, and the directors who actually want to see a world in which that potential technology can be used in a way that doesn't simply eliminate uh, particularly the jobs of extras who could be then put on film simply by using AI to reproduce an image taken of them originally, but for which they would not be paid afterwards. Let's talk about local control. I mean, what's really fascinating is if we sort of take out some of these identifiers within the context of our conversation and we substitute in other, you know, years and maybe uh, circumstance, they sound, they can sound very similar. And I'm wondering the role of local control versus uh, sort of the, the, the tentacles of the federal government in, in mandating or regulating the world around us and how we can look at what was going on. Uh, in the 1890s and apply it to even the role and the viability of unions today? That's an interesting question. Uh, and in terms of the populace, I would uh, turn to the particular way in which they saw a future based on cooperatives. Uh, they did not want, you know, they, the exception was railroads or utilities, which they regarded as natural monopolies. Uh, but otherwise, uh, what they were about, both the Knights of Labor and the Farmers Alliance and the populists who came to represent both of those groups, was a preference for cooperative uh, enterprise, meaning, in other words, it's still a market economy, but the private initiative of farmers or workers would be one of their collective involvement as owners, collective owners of the enterprise, of the effort being made, so that in the case of farmers, that what they wanted was uh, they saw cooperatives as a kind of union of small scale farmers, small entrepreneurs, but who in a in an international market knew that they were at a real disadvantage with respect to grain merchants and the ones who financial interests in particular that controlled those markets. That their their leverage as entrepreneurs would be improved if they came to with came together as a cooperative and collectively marketed their corn, their wheat, their cotton on those global markets. So it's, a, it's an interesting combination where you have an interest in participating in a global economy, but to do so by coming together with in your region, in your neighborhood, uh, or in your workplace with like-minded folks who want to collectively, as a cooperative, uh, take control of that operation as much as they can and are and then bargain with the powers that be with considerably more leverage. If we think about the history of unions and we think about going back to the 1890s, where we are today, it, it feels like if if I were to go down to a, you know, like I was saying earlier, I go to a soccer practice, right, for my son and have a conversation with some of the parents, I think that they would they would think of maybe 
the viability of unions sort of, uh, you know, petering out a bit, you know, now that we're in 2023, that, that it's just not the same world as when they first landed on, on the scene. But now we see obviously sort of a, a record tentative agreement with the UAW and, and what that might mean. And have we just breathed uh, an incredible amount of oxygen into the lungs of workers represented by unions? Does this change the face and the understanding we have and role of unions in our society? I hope so. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> hope so. I think what's what's uh, inspiring about what the UAW did was that um, in, in contrast to the previous approach, uh, where there was a sort of passive and sort of uh, on the back heel, um, you know, being pressed along by circumstances, the UAW, the new leadership said, no, what we have to do is, you know, we're either going to this is it. Maybe it's a Hail Mary, but without it, we're going to lose. We have to fight for what we believe in uh, and make it something that uh, addresses the needs of the broadest possible spectrum of the population. So that Sean Fang, uh, instead of just talking about auto workers as a sort of aristocracy of labor, his message was this is something that is important for working people across the board. What we are about is addressing the inequities and the uh, way in which uh, a privileged small number of folks would might continue to get a decent wage, but then all the new hires would be uh, segregated into tiers, as they called them, or they would be permanent temporary workers, and think that through as an oxymoron, uh, so that lower tier workers, temporary workers, there would be a, a, a hierarchy of privilege within uh, any workplace, any auto factory uh, organized under those terms. And the auto workers were saying, no, we're all doing the same work. We're all in this together. And we have to fight for something that compresses that uh, range between the top and the bottom and hopefully eliminates eventually some of that those tiers by which workers are doing the same job but are being paid radically different amounts of money. And that took some, that was a bold step uh, that the previous leadership had not been prepared to actually consider uh, and it actually made concessions that allowed that to be uh, made more and more the way in which the auto industry was heading. And so is that sustainable? We'll soon find out. And I think one of the things that is going to make a difference, we hope, is that uh, non-union auto workers will say will see their own circumstance uh, as one that could definitely improve, be improved under the same kind of bargaining and collective effort. Uh, to improve the circumstances for workers across the board, whether it's Toyota or Honda or Tesla or what have you. And I think that's starting to happen right after the settlement, by the way, uh, Toyota raised its wages unilaterally. I saw that. That was sort of, yeah, <laughs> just happened to, right? Um, right. And you knew, you, knew, you knew why that was happening. And uh, the message, and Sean Fain said, he said, well, we hope you enjoy that. Uh, there's more to come if you want to join with us. And we, well, let's, let's look at what that future might look like. Let, let's take a hard left or right so that people don't say we're, we're speaking on one side of the table or not uh, in this discussion, Steve, and talk a little bit about um, the profession of being a historian and an author. Because I think it's it's something that is a responsibility I take when I think about students as uh, the next generation and the things that will inspire them. So let's talk a little bit about what it is to be you on a daily basis. Uh, I, I'd love to understand what it's like when you are either turning a page or you're you're you know, you're on your computer, you're searching, right? You don't know maybe what you're searching for, but you find some, 
because I think being an historian, because we have similar backgrounds, we're of different generations with very similar backgrounds linked to World War II. And so when you talk about, you know, that connection and how that really sort of got that, that creativity and that explorer in you uh, going, I relate to that uh, immensely. And I think that's something that I'd love to see more young people. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.